Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hello, my name is Kelly Brownell, and I'm the director of the Rudd Center for Food Policy and Obesity at Yale University. I'm delighted to welcome our guest today, Dr. David Walinga, who is the director of the Food and Health Program at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. Uh, he's also part of a William T. Grant uh, Foundation Fellowship Program that's connected with the University of Minnesota. He's educated at Dartmouth, at Princeton, and the University of Minnesota Medical School, has been very involved in various ways in the environmental movement over the years, and uh, has done some very interesting work in recent years on food and food agriculture and the impact on the environment. So welcome, David. Delighted to have you here. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So at the Rudd Center talk that you just presented that was entitled A World Underfed and Overnourished, you talked um, uh, about a variety of things, but among them was how the farm has changed in the United States. Could you describe some of those changes, please? Sure. Um, well, probably 80 years ago and, and, and maybe even up until World War II, the average farm in the middle of the country would have been a pretty small-scale farm that produced a lot of different things. They might have had a few animals. They'd grow some corn to feed the animals. They'd have some grass for the chickens to run around on. Uh, and they might have eight, nine, ten different uh, crops or products that that farm produced. It was pretty much of a closed system. Today, the farms are much larger, for one thing, but they're also really much more specialized. They, they're not a closed system anymore. They produce one thing, typically, maybe two. And because of that, they have to bring in a lot of uh, resources from off the farm to, make sh uh, to feed the production system that results in that one product. And that has a lot of implications, both for the environment and for public health. And you've mentioned that the American farm system has been pushed for a variety of reasons into this production, production, production mindset, where yield is the the overriding goal and things. How, why has that occurred? I mean, it sort of makes sense that it occurs in a way, because everybody who makes something wants to produce as much of it as they can and get it out on the market. But you make the point that a variety of market factors, government policies, and other things have driven this driven this down the road and that it has some negative consequences? Well, well, there have been a lot of different drivers. I mean, some of it is uh, historical. Um, uh, the, the farmers got a certain number of fixed costs. Uh, some of their equipment and their land is quite expensive. And um, as they were able to use their big expensive combine or tractor on more land, uh, it became economical for them to do so. Uh, at the same time, the food system's gotten a lot more global, and so when you're growing something like corn or soybeans and it's a dry commodity that you can store and ship and maybe try to time the commodity markets to get a good price, um, there's some incentive to do that. Um, those are some of the reasons. Well, you mentioned as well uh, before that um, farmers were in this funny economic situation that when the cost of their product was high, they would grow more, but when the cost of the product was low, they would grow more as well. Right. How did that come about? Well, it, in part, it's because a lot of the grain farmers were in the middle of the country in the Great Plains, and they were uh, f far away. They're on small farms. They can't really influence big markets. So in other words, if a farmer makes a decision on how much to grow, he knows that he's never going to change the price of grain that he sees. 
he can't change the weather. Um, and so there's an incentive for him to grow as much corn as possible. So if the price is high, he'll benefit. If the price is low, at least he'll cover more of those fixed costs. And so uh, even during the Depression, and <clears throat> Henry Wallace, who was the Secretary of Agriculture then, recognized this phenomena, this tendency for these grain farmers and uh, corn and soybean farmers to over overproduce, and they realized that they needed to... Um, change their government policies to address that chronic oversupply. Now, you have spoken a lot and written a lot about the impact of farm subsidies on diet, health, the environment, and the like. Most people don't understand. They've heard about the subsidies because it gets a lot of airplay these days, but I don't think many people really understand what the subsidies are all about and what impact they have. Could you describe briefly the history of the subsidies that we see today and what impacts they have? Well, the subsidies are among many different kinds of programs, and it's pretty complex, so it's not too surprising that people don't fully understand them. But um, basically, the, during the Depression, what was happening in the farm sector was that there was too much product and no markets to sell them to. And so part of what happened in those years was that Henry Wallace and others instituted uh, grain reserve programs. And what these did was to soak up excess supply because the farmers were producing too much and then to release it onto the market when supplies got low or there was a bad year. And in effect, this stabilized the prices in the marketplace for farmers. It, it amounts to a minimum wage for farmers. It keeps the price above what it actually costs them to produce. And um, so over time, they make a little money. They can stay on the farm and the land stays in production. And then things changed in the Nixon administration, didn't they? Yeah. Um, Earl Butts was the Secretary of Agriculture in, in the Nixon administration. And in 1974, he uh, launched um, a program. It was amounted to a cheap food policy uh, and really a cheap grain policy. And, and the idea was to f encourage farmers to produce fence row to fence row. That was the tagline. Uh, basically produce as much as of these corn and soybeans and other commodity grains as they possibly could. And the thought behind it was that there was a few years where there were famines overseas in Russia uh, and the prices went up and they thought if American farmers produced even more surpluses, they'd be able to sell more into these markets. And that was the rationale. It hasn't turned out that way. Instead, what's happened, <clears throat> and particularly in the middle of 1980s to late 1980s, was that the prices for these commodity crops collapsed and a lot of farmers in the heart of the country went out of business. There was a farm crisis. And basically the market price was below what it cost these farmers to produce these crops. And that has continued for most of the last 35 years. The so-called subsidies are really <clears throat> a stopgap measure. They're a, a Band-Aid payment, a direct payment to the farmer to keep them in business even though the market has failed and they can't, the market won't give them a price that covers what it costs them to produce. So with the, the government intervening in ways that drive down the cost of commodity products like corn and soybeans, what, what are some of the effects on nutrition and the diet of Americans? Um, well, the effects are, are as follows. I mean, one thing, we have a lot of corn and soybeans 
And uh, the industry's gotten very creative in different ways to use all that surplus corn and soybeans. Certainly some of it's been shipped overseas, but um, it's not mostly going to food per se. People don't eat a lot of corn and soybeans. Well, they do, but um, they don't eat it a substantial amount of the supply. Most of it's going to feed livestock and poultry. It's, it's animal feed. Uh, it's not sweet corn, it's feed corn. And um, because the, the market prices for these feed grains is low, it's essentially subsidized, indirectly subsidized, the big companies that are producing meat cheaply. Uh, and most of them are doing, most of them that are raising animals on grain rather than on grass are doing so in these very large, confined uh, meat factories. So this artificially suppresses the cost of meat then and can explain why meat's available much more cheaply than it otherwise would be. Yeah, researchers at Tufts University have estimated that over just an eight-year period, the low cost of the feed grains effectively gave a $20 billion subsidy to the biggest uh, pork-producing companies and the biggest chicken-producing companies. Now, I know one of the other um, food constituents that gets mentioned in this regard is high-fructose corn syrup, and we're, going, we're about to record another podcast on that a very interesting and, and controversial topic. But you, you've also made the point that, um, that some of the modern agricultural practices have negative consequences for the environment. Would you be able to, to just quickly give us an overview of what some of the major concerns are? Well, the, probably the rationale that's driven most modern agriculture is this concept that we need to produce as much as we possibly can. So things like animal husbandry or stewardship of the soil have fallen by the wayside in favor of yield, in other words, producing more and more. And this production-oriented approach has had a lot of negative costs. Um, for one thing, in the short term, the way that we drove that production for grains was to use a lot of uh, uh, fertilizers and chemical fertilizers and pesticides. And these things um, are made from fossil fuels, either natural gas or petroleum. So there's a cost to the climate in terms of all that carbon uh, or nitrogen that's being put on the land. And a lot of it, uh, in addition to uh, contributing to climate change, is also running off into the waterways and creating uh, problems with eutrophication of the waterways. So a cascade of environmental problems come from modern agricultural practices. One thing, uh, a statistic that I know you've cited before is the, the degree to which food production is, an, is a player in global warming. Could you describe where it fits in that picture? Sure. If it, well, let's take the U.S. first. The, and I don't think we have great data on this, but the estimates uh, are that U.S. agriculture, the U.S. food system accounts for about 17% of uh, uh, carbon or fossil fuel use in the country. And that puts it on about the same order as the transportation sector. So we hear a lot about getting people to drive less or, you know, investing in mass transit. Not so much about investing in better, more fuel-efficient agriculture. Globally, um, the Food and Agriculture Organization uh, last year came out with a very significant report just looking at livestock, and they estimated, again, that just the livestock sector uh, may account for 18 percent of, of uh, carbon emissions. Some of that is due to the fact that you're taking this very fuel-intensive corn and then feeding it to an animal. 
So there's a lot of embedded carbon in the meat that you eat for your lunch or your dinner. I'm assuming the, the report you're talking about is the one entitled Livestock's Long Shadow. I agree that's a really terrific report and something that people can easily access on the web if they just put that title, Livestock's Long Shadow, into, the, into Google or one of the other search engines. Well, thank you, David. This has been very interesting, and the work is terribly important. And the, thankfully, the public's becoming more and more aware of the environmental cost of food production and different food choices they make. And hopefully these will come around in a positive way and to help the, the planet in, in a very positive regard. So thank you very much for coming. My pleasure. Now, I also would like to tell the listeners that we're going to record separate podcasts on high fructose corn syrup and also the use of antibiotics in modern farm animals, both very interesting topics. Our guest today was David Walenga, physician and director of the Food and Health Program at the Institute of Agriculture and Trade Policy in Minneapolis. I welcome you to visit our website, www.yalerudcenter.org, for an email newsletter that we publish monthly at no charge, a variety of other resources, um, including a list of the other excellent podcasts we've recorded. Thank you.